Hey, welcome back. This is Dan Blewett, and this is Dear Baseball Gods, episode 3-0, the Big 30. So today I have a former teammate of mine, a good friend. He's coming on the show named Sean Gleason. Sean's 32 years old, was a former 25th round pick from the Boston Red Sox out of Lamar Community College in Colorado, and also in the subsequent year was a 20th round pick of the Baltimore Orioles uh, out of St. Mary's College in California. So Sean was a good good friend of mine. He played 11 seasons of pro baseball, played uh, his first seven with the Baltimore Orioles, and then he played parts of five seasons with um, the Mexican Winter League teams, Oaxaca, Veracruz, Jalisco, Obregon, Reynosa, Puebla, Guasave, and Quintana. So Sean has been around pretty much everywhere. He's a Mexican League veteran, which is very interesting. We're going to talk about that a bunch today has been to every level in the minors, and he's also played a couple of different seasons in the Can-Am League and Independent Ball and in Sugarland, New Britain, and Camden, which is where I played with him in the Atlantic League. So I'm going to introduce my good friend, Sean Gleason. All right, Sean, what's up, man? How's uh, Vegas treating you? It's great. Sunny, no wind today, clear skies. So what did you pick up at Sam's Club just now? Uh, the essentials for your coffee, MCT oil, um, some ghee butter, cinnamon, and then some cooking material, aka olive oil. All right, so and that's about it. Fill my reader, my listeners, not readers. Fill my listeners in on your workout habits because you're pretty big into lifting. You're much. You're one of the, on like the the spectrum of pitchers who don't lift, who love to lift. You're a guy who loves to lift, and you deadlift a lot, and you're big into supplements and eating healthy. And so, tell me the current climate of Sean Gleason and his training. Well, the current climate, I've kind of uh, switched off to double leg lifts, except for the days I deadlift, which are Fridays. Um, Mondays, I've been doing single leg dead squat, deadlifts, or single leg squats with elevated foot in the back with a kind of a yoke bar. Tuesdays, I've been going to do weighted pull-ups, which was today. Wednesdays, I've been taking off. Thursdays, I'll do kettlebell heavy swings and some glute ham. And then uh, Fridays, like I said, deadlifts. And then in the evenings, uh, sometimes I'll go to a normal gym and do a little upper body, but not too much. Got to stay flexible and, you know, uh, able to throw the baseball, which is what... I've been getting paid for for the last 13 years. Okay. So we'll get, I want to get heavy into the uh, Mexican uh, league that you played in for a long time and just kind of the differences between that and American baseball. But um, take me back. So you're, so for those of you who cannot uh, obviously see Sean, he's, you're what, six foot and what, like 230? You're like pretty stocky built guy, uh, more like a linebacker. And I always say that, that Sean would have been better suited, I think. And this is a sentiment, I think, from the movie Sin City, where I think Sean would have been well-suited, like, swinging an axe in, like, medieval times back in the day. But um, oh, That would have been great. Yeah, I know. That would be right up your alley. You'd be like the guy just, like, chop up someone's boat in half as they're pulling up to the beach with a huge axe. Right. That would be like you, the Viking. But um, what? Uh, when did you start getting big into lifting and – what were you like when you were younger and how much do you feel like your weight contributed to your velocity? Cause I know you were up to 98 at different points in your career, but how did your velocity change with your weight and your size and your strength? Well, I think I got pretty big into lifting. I would say after my rookie ball season. So that had been the, fall of 2008 when I came back here to Vegas for the first time I worked out at a facility called Tim Soder Physical Therapy which a lot of minor league and major league players still attend and you get up at around 5 a.m. you do you got to be there about 5 30 and work out to about 7 because he also runs a physical therapy practice so patients come in and see him about 7.30 so we needed to be out and he would have position players and pitchers so he'd curtail workouts vice versa and then going into the spring of 2008 is when I had my best season uh, in the South Atlantic League with the Delmarva Shorebirds that were 
with the Baltimore Oriole organization. I went 12 and two with like a two, six, made the little all-star game. And it's had a really uh, video game type year. If you would say, you know, just where you're supposed to be a starter and only one out of five starts, you have your best stuff is what they would say. But I would say four out of five, I was lights out or at least had two or three pitches. So you were killing it. Killing it. And uh, <laughs> that's when I was really started into kettlebells. And, you know, now kettlebells are mainstream, but there's so many people out there that are doing it the wrong way. And I feel sorry for them. But, you know, I got the head start. And, you know, still today I've been 13 years injury-free in the shoulders and legs. And, you know, I can't complain. I just think that's one of the tools that needs to be implemented more so into baseball if it's done correctly to, you know, especially for conditioning and longevity of a starter. It's just, you know, it's a hip hinge movement. It's a ballistic movement. It's not going to make you sore like a deep squat or a front squat or a leg press per se. Okay, so you're a big kettlebell guy. Huge. Do you own any of the kettlebells with like the crazy like gorilla face or like the skulls? Do you own any of those like skull bells? I do not because they're limited to the exercises you can do with them. Aesthetically, they're awesome, but for daily use, brutal. All you can do is just a normal swing. You couldn't do a press or a Turkish get-up per se. And price per pound, they're pretty expensive, but they're fun to look at. Probably most people have them as a doorstop. Yeah, I guess that's fair. So you grew up yeah. in Colorado. And yeah, I'm in Colorado. Lamar Community College, and you were drafted out of there, right, by the Red Sox? In 06, correct. And then I uh, held out, per se, or just, you know, asked for the right slot money due to I was only in JUCO, and I felt like if I was going to not attend the next school that I had signed with, which was St. Mary's in California, I wanted X amount of dollars. Um, they called me when I was on the plane ride to St. Mary's and offered what I had asked, but, you know, I was on the plane ride and I said, you know, I'm going to play West Coast Conference baseball and play for St. Mary's for a year and take my chances on getting drafted again. And sure enough, I was blessed enough to get drafted again in the 20th round by the Orioles. They didn't show much interest at all via, per se, letters and talking. I still was in contact with the Red Sox a lot, but they opted not to take me and I went with the Orioles organization for my full miling contract so it was great so can I ask what you're holding out for the Red Sox I was asking for 110 just because two years at St. Mary's is close it was right then back then it was like 42 grand a year to attend the private school so I wanted uh, at least to be able to cover two two years of that and maybe you know, a couple after taxes have probably been around the 80 grand, so it would have been equaled out. Okay. So tell me what you were like as a college pitcher then. I mean, what, what did the Red Sox see? Like, what was their scouting report reading on Sean Gleason? Uh, I mean, I would have to say that I was a strike thrower, you know, pitched to contact, competed. You know, that's probably my number one thing is – no matter if I'm down 10 or up 10, I'm going to, you know, compete with my best pitch, which has always been my fastball. Um, I feel like they knew me well from JUCO and competing at the JUCO level, which was the Arizona, the Utah, Oklahoma, and we played Texas, all around that region, which was fairly pretty stiff at the time. It just, you know, most of those guys just held out maybe the year before when it was the draft and follow. And that 06 was the last year of that, or 05, one of the two. And, you know, just like what they saw, saw a little bit of projectability due to I hadn't, I mean, I pitched in high school in the league games, but I didn't, wasn't overused. I also played two-way my first year in JUCO, so I wasn't being killed. So I still had a lot of uh, life in the arm, I believe, and with limited lifting back then, it was just traditional. I mean, I lifted, but I wasn't as into it as I am now and beliefs in it. And I'll tell you what, strength matters. So what were you, like, repertoire-wise? Your fastball, curveball, changeup? What was your velocity? All that yeah, stuff. fastball, curveball, changeup. I didn't learn a slider until I went to St. Mary's, to be honest. But uh, velocity-wise, because I was, I don't know, 88 to 92, 
And then uh, that first year, come playoffs, I wasn't the one of the three guys that were going to start any of the games. So I would pitch out of the pen and follow up one of those guys, and I was, you know, touching 94s here and there. So, you know, your eyes kind of jump out when that happens. And from there, I, you know, I'd say I sticked around on the 90s, 93s for the first three years of pro ball, touching 94 at times. And then uh, after the three years I'd started, I went to the bullpen and started doing more pull-ups and playing long toss more religiously and maybe maturing more. And the velo came up and... You know, out of the pen, I just felt like that was my calling, just having that bulldog mentality, people would say, you know, just going out there and attacking the hitters, trying to get them out in three pitches or less. So despite being a guy who threw pretty hard, you've already a number of times alluded to pitching the contact and trying to get guys out in three pitches or less. So I feel like it's a misnomer that even as a reliever, you have to throw a lot of strikes, right? I mean, you should. But it's not but just I the mean, case where, you know, I, th- I think sometimes guys think of relievers as the wild ones where, you know, it's okay to walk a guy in the inning. You know, it's okay to not have that great command because you'll come back if you fall back in the count. But I don't think that's really the case. I mean, I mean, do you agree that obviously you can have less command as a reliever because you'll strike more guys out, maybe all that stuff. You know, as your strikeouts go up, your walks can go up a little bit, but... To be an effective reliever, I mean, you've closed and been a late innings guy for different years in your career. I mean, how essential was it that you got ahead and still were kind of efficient? I mean, first pitch strike is huge, and it's still going to always be huge because then you control the count. And I feel like some of these guys now, you know, they don't get first pitch strike all the time, but, man, the guys in the big leagues they have one pitch that's just devastating and they can throw it at any point in time for a strike or a ball which makes them real tough but you know the efficiency to throw three pitches or less per se you can be up the next day and the next day you know you're just saving wear and tear in your arm and you know less the less pitches they see the more effective you'll be throughout that series as well you know they're only seeing a couple pitches from you so if they're going to roll over on a quality pitch that's in the zone it's gonna you know it's gonna make your longevity better in that series in the season and for your career and i feel like for me i didn't compete in the zone all the time maybe when I was younger, but then after the couple of times I went to Mexico and played there, you know, it's like either, you know, you either produce, what have you done for me lately? Or they're just sending you home and then you don't get that money. And in Mexico, it's, you know, as a gringo, they would say, or as an import, you know, you got to compete in the zone because the, the, the strike zone's tighter. So I learned there, you know, just go out there and throw your best two seam and let it run and, you know, throw strike one, and then they're going to have to swing. Whereas if you're down 2-0 in, you know, Mexican League Baseball, it's just going to, the strike zone is going to keep shrinking. Okay, so let's talk about your transition. So you're with the Orioles from 2007 to 2012, right? And then 2012 is when you went to Quintana, or Quintana of the Mexican League. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it first started, Yeah. so I went, I had a killer year in A and double A, or A ball and triple A closing, that's, you know, they had a bunch of closers coming up that year, and that was the first year I really got to close, I had 33 saves at Frederick, we won the title, Machado, Scope were my middle infield, nothing better to play behind, but, uh, so I got the on. I got a call one day after that. And trip. I was up in AAA for a few outings, and we want you to go represent the Orioles in the Fall League in 2011. My numbers look like a Sudoku page, you know, just terrible. Getting first pitch. That's when you first pitch strikes were just uh, first pitch strikes were getting smacked. You know, I had nines, and I think I finished with like a 14. But I mean, no, you finished my Vila, with 16. My Vila, 16.62. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, never I, mean, I couldn't. I couldn't, I couldn't miss. Awesome. <laughs> I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't miss a barrel. But I mean, my velo was up. My pitches were good. I was healthy. It's just I had some bat- balls hit off the third, first base bag. Maybe a fly ball lost in the sun, and then you strike out the next guy. I mean, no worries. Felt great. Left healthy. 
you know, usually the next year you're going to go to a big league camp and show the stuff to the front office and things just didn't work out. So my agent was like, Hey, got opportunity for opportunity for you to go down the second half in Mexico, little farm town named Mosave, Sinaloa. Didn't know Spanish, didn't know anything. Signed up, signed the contract for seven grand. Cool. It was the most money I'll ever get in a month that I've ever played for. Let's go do it. Start out first five games, no hits, no runs, nothing. Just dominating back to that video game type thing. And I learned to pitch in the zone. My Vila was still up, recognized throughout the league real quick. was offered to go to the Caribbean Series, but I just went home. I had thrown a lot. So that was my first experience in Mexico. I was like, man, this is awesome. The crowds, the playoff atmosphere is just insane. Mexico baseball is for a good time and you feel like you're at a nightclub, but you're pitching. Nothing better. So tell me. leaders on the dugouts, bat boys are midgets. I mean, chicken fights in between innings sometimes, just insane things. So, okay, we're going to get deeper into that because I'm going to need you to explain everything that you just described. But uh, salary. So what were you making at each level with the Orioles and the minors? And then obviously you said you made seven grand a month. Um, I think the first year, yeah, I think the first year in the Orioles, it's on just on all on a scale on what level you're at and then what year say, I think the first year I'm going to take 1100 and all we had before games was the typical, what we call minor league caviar, peanut butter, jelly and orange slices you know, that's what you did. And you, you got to wear a jersey and you're with an organization and you go out there and play ball. And then it went up about $100 every year, depending on what level. I think the most in single A you could get was like 1600 Then first year double A was 21 not even, maybe like 1800 And triple A first year, 2300 And then it just goes up if, say, if you repeat triple A, 22 and then after your minor league contract's done is when you become a minor league free agent. And you could either re-sign, excuse me, um, you could either re-sign with the team that it was with or you can, you know, take the free agent chance and go out there and hopefully do the first year minor league contract. It's usually like a 7-10, split. That means five grand in double A, eight grand in triple A, just depending if you have no major league time. And all, obviously, if you been called up and been on the roster you know life-changing money starts coming in but i never had that pleasure um i don't even know what it's at now i just i heard today that the astros just had 438 grand to each person for winning the world series the highest ever playoff checks or bonus ever in the history of mlb so with that on top of a first year Major League salary of like five hundred seventy-five thousand now per year. I mean, those guys are doing really well, and that's where the money starts kicking in, and that's why health and you know playing well is you know making these guys a lot, lot of money. Well, and it's sad that none of that money trickles down in the minor leagues because it's still terrible as far as salaries go. You know, they could you know a million dollars would shame. go really far in the minors to giving guys yeah, a better cost of living. I just feel like. If they're going to say if they hack 2% of the major league salary, they should just cut the dues in the minor leagues and provide a nice spread and maybe rent out apartment housing so you don't have to pay for those things. Because due to if they got more salary in the minor leagues, I think it would be used on maybe not the correct things and there might be more problems per se on the daily, you know, maybe higher bar tabs or maybe you know spending in the wrong ways and you know they're trying to make it a privilege if you get called up to the major leagues you know life-changing money but i think that they could also help out in the meals per day say no dues and you know at least housing because sometimes we're living six guys in a two-bedroom apartment and all six of us had air mattresses i mean three guys in a room it, it's tough i mean it's a it's a grind which i never like to call it a grind because you're doing something that somebody else is probably envied of and wants to do and would do it in a heartbeat for that cheaper money but it's not all the glitz and glamour that these people think or then they see you at the bar and notice or at a restaurant or even just out in the public you know you're a role model but they think you make all this money well you know 
we're out there scraping and it's only in the season that you're playing the balls when you're getting paid so if you didn't get a bonus that heavy you know you're back on it finding a nine to five maybe or doing lessons or something in the off season to supplement the income to allow you to train and eat correctly if you're not staying at home and you know after the first couple of years you know guys are pushing 21 23 it's hard to stay at home unless you're in the ideal situation yeah and i uh i think people lose track of the fact that you know you don't get paid well and they almost feel like oh you're you know you're spoiled because like you said that you're living a dream and you're doing this this amazing job that everyone else envies but at the same time it doesn't mean just because other people would would kill to do that job doesn't mean you shouldn't get paid fairly for it you know and like you said with having to take care of your body in the off season having to stay healthy eat and train like you don't get paid for any of that you don't get paid in the off season and when you get paid during the season you get paid like 30 bucks a game essentially you know or 60 bucks a game or 90 bucks a game if you're doing really well and uh you know that's just crazy for how much prep you put in you're making minimum wage when you consider how long you're at the ballpark and on the on the bus and you're you know 18 per diems and all this stuff and um that's the thing is like when you know for example, when we're playing together or any time you're playing ball, like no one sees you up at 10 o'clock in the morning to go do a morning lift and or maybe some sprints or maybe going to yoga or something to, you know, invest in your career. And then you got to be there at one o'clock. You got to shag DP. You got to throw early, get your running in and shower and get something to eat. I mean, it's a long day. It's a it's a business type day. And then you turn around and play at seven and for the crowd and you're performing and you might get out of there by 11 o'clock when you're all showered and done and your arm care is complete or your after routine or your rehab's done. It's, it's a, it is a grind, but you know, you got to love it. You, you know, if you didn't love it, you wouldn't do it. And it's better than, you know, working behind a desk, you know, I mean, it's a sport. It's something that you grew up dream to have the chance to be that percentage that would make it. And, you know, sometimes you shake your head and wonder why this guy versus this guy, but you never know what they see. And now with all the data and sabermetrics or whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's just becoming insane. And I feel sorry for some of these kids, you know, there's almost test tube kids coming and trying to find the best numbers and this and that. And instead of sometimes you want the best kid that's going to be out there, you know, representing the Orioles, Yankees, whoever, you know, like a class act and on and off the field and doing the right thing. And maybe, you know, like I said, we're talking the salary in the minor leagues. Maybe they'll, once you have your full season under belt, you'll get to negotiate maybe a thousand dollar raise versus a hundred the next year with the club. Maybe, you know, maybe there can be more negotiations versus a set salary due to your performance, even in the minor leagues that might, you know, jump start some differences but until then you know these kids are going to be out there battling and it's cutthroat i mean there's seven minor leagues there's no just d league like the nba there's no practice squad in the nfl i mean you gotta sometimes there's seven teams six levels you gotta jump and if you're not the number one pick your probability and your opportunities are less than just because you weren't the guy on their list yeah and it's you know, I know there's been a lawsuit, and actually one of our teammates, Matt Gorgon, uh, was one of the, the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against Major League Baseball. But I don't know how that's gone. I don't think it's gotten anywhere. I know I had some press a couple years ago, but it doesn't seem like it's really progressed. I'm not sure if it's still active or not. But, you know, the, the labor dispute with the minor league wages is kind of like, well, look, in any other job, you get paid for your performance. So if you have an all-star season at, you know, double A, you should get compensated, get, you know, you should get a, a raise for it or whatever. Um, but on top of that, there's competition. You know, if you work for Google and you're a star, there's no reason you can't take a job at, you know, some other company. You know, if they hire, if Microsoft wants to hire you away and pay you 40 grand more, you can say, sure, you know, um, there's, but that's not how it is. You're under, you know, the major league team's control for six years and then, you have to pay what they pay you or take what they pay you and and you're completely under their control which is just crazy you know there's no other job like that where you have no rights whatsoever the only thing i think they could do is maybe you know depending maybe on the rounds would lengthen or shorten your minor league stint with that club 
So you wouldn't have to hope to get traded. You know, say if you're the first top 10 picks, they have you for five years and 10 to 20 or I don't know, or the first 15 picks, you know, you, they have, you have them for the five years and the rest only have a three year minor league contract. I, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, baseball's killing it. They have the best, everything, the players union, TV contracts, huge contracts coming out. I mean, there's going to be guys getting a half a billion dollars here soon on the yeah. market, which is crazy money. Crazy, 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 life-changing, I mean, generation-type changing money. But I don't believe in that. I don't believe in a 10-year contract. I mean, how can you project someone's going to be that good for the next 10 years? I think the max contract is should be five in the major leagues. I mean, and if, you, you know, some of these guys get complacent, you see it. They just, their numbers fall off, but they're guaranteed that money. I mean, make somebody stay hungry. Like Adam Jones always says, you know, stay hungry. I mean, that guy competes every day, and why isn't he worth a half a billion? Who knows? But, you know, some of these other guys, because they're superstars, and they're getting a half a billion. And, you know, they're great players, respectively. I think everybody in the major leagues deserves to be there. They're there for a reason. You know, they're the best of the best. They've done something right or created something in their game to, you know, stay up there and I, you know, I wish I could have experienced it for a day or two just to, you know, have stories or whatnot. But I mean, five-year contracts a lot, and you know, after five years, I mean, some of these guys getting ten-year contracts, that's already guaranteeing their ten years full pension. You know, make them, make them compete a little bit harder, maybe. I don't know, but reach is on. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They go into contract value more than they ever did now with all the sabermetric data and. You know, I heard one of the Red Sox guys talk uh, in August at Sabre Seminar, and he was explaining how he would, because he was one of the main guys who evaluated contract extensions, and he was talking about how they, you know, ex- extended Pedroia and all these other guys and um, the pros and cons and how they, you know, demonstrated value and how it wasn't just numbers. It was also some intangibles. And, you know, one of the interesting things he said was that – uh you know, with Pedroia, I think they gave him either a little more money than they thought maybe he was worth, um, you know, statistically or whatever. But they said there were a couple of factors that he mentioned that I thought were very intelligent. Number one was if we don't give Pedroia this amount or this many years, or if we say no and we just cut him loose, what does that say to the other, to the younger guys? You know, the guys who are coming up who want to be like him one day you know if that's the kind of guy who was like a franchise player who played for us his whole career did all this stuff for us a leader you know if we cut that guy loose what do the younger guys have to aspire to they're like if they'll do that to him you know what are they going to do for me like they're not going to do anything for me like Pedroia was the guy and you know that's what they did to him so that was one factor totally Um, and then the other one was just uh Yeah, and it was. I thought it was really profound. They thought about that, and then the other thing was just. I just uh, don't like the years on the contract. That's the thing. I mean, dump, give them twenty million a year, but for five years. I mean, make them recompete. Yeah. I mean, there's guys out there that compete. So there's. I mean, there's not many. I mean, there's only one Dustin Pedroia. I mean, you could say that he's never really let off the gas, but that's that's his makeup. That's who he is. I mean, there's guys though that have gotten paid and. I mean, who was it with the the Dimeback? Eric Burns, I think, was still getting paid like fifteen million for two years and was out playing softball. Yeah, yeah. The so, the you know, Bobby Bonilla is still getting like a million dollars a year from the uh, from the from the Mets. But, yeah, that's awesome. So seven grand a month, you got paid that with your first uh, Mexican contract. I mean, mm-hmm. then I went back. Going? Okay, go go with it. So that I finished good there. We lost in the finals. Uh, went back to spring training. Everybody's like, wow, you really did great in Mexico and fun to watch and heard good things. So went on to the next season and then about halfway in that year in double A, there wasn't any moves. The Orioles were kind of struggling. So one of the player ops guys that was in the Mexican Winter League also ran Cancun called and well, that was a year. Let me backtrack. That was the year that Miguel Gonzalez, he was right. He came to spring training with the Orioles, didn't even make a team out of spring training, sat and extended, 
two weeks later, got called up to Norfolk, went like 40 innings with like a .30, got called up to the major leagues and finished up there. That was one of the Mexican prospects from the winter league that killed it after his Tommy John. Well, the director of Mexico knew also that he was there, so was checking on him. Then knew I was doing well, so checked on me. And then off, uh, talked to the player development guy and, and the Orioles and asked if I was available to go the rest of the season down and play for Cancun. And they asked me if I wanted to. There was going to be no moves or call-ups in my direction, so I said, sure. Uh, I think first year from in the summer league was eight grand per month. So I went down there, and I think – what was it? I went. I gave up a run the first night, and then I went 14 games scoreless for the, the regular season, the rest of it. And then I gave up a couple runs in the playoffs. But we went to the semifinals but lost game seven of the semifinals just in a long, long – I came in the seventh inning and tried to pitch four innings. And just, we lost by one or two, I believe. But the series before that, which is funny, is we lost the game on an intentional walk when you used to have to throw the ball because I threw it to the backstop. <laughs> Just whiff the catcher. Straight to the backstop, run scores, game over. Series was up them by one game, and we are going home for the next two. That was against Oaxaca. And so since then, though, I mean, in Mexico, I, I would say I'm 80% fluent in Spanish now. and Met a lot of great people who love their country a lot. I think there's they have a lot to offer. Baseball is definitely up and coming. Their facilities are being upgraded immensely every day. The Winter League, I mean, I don't even know if there's but one bad field now. You have Guadalajara that's practically brand-new turf. Culiacan is two years old now. I mean, let me see where else. Obregon last year just built. They have like a year or a half a season under their field. I mean, there's some ballparks that compete with the major leagues now. So tell me about the ballparks. As we, I know we talked about this before. They're really high tech, you said, right? Yeah. Culiacan just built, I think, what they stated was the best technological sound park in Latin America right now. But I didn't get the pleasure to play there when I played there. It was still nice, but now they have like a 100-foot jumbo crown in center field, legit stadium seating instead of bleachers. Um, I mean, when they would call spring training, we played like on skinned infields with, you know, a bump in the soccer field. But, uh, now that you know, with the money coming in and sponsorships of like Bud Light, Potosinos, which is a huge trucking industry down there, and things of those natures, there's high sponsors. So it's becoming as sponsored baseball as soccer is down there, and uh, it's just getting better. It's just, it's a shame. There should be more Mexican players in the states. It's just that when you have a Mexican player that throws hard. Or, you know, especially on the pitching side, they use him over and over. And I don't understand how in Mexico, winter and summer league, some of these guys are starting both for both teams and both, you know, both seasons. That's like 60 starts a season and they go for six or seven years. No wonder there are. They go from 95 to 88. And another thing about Mexican baseball you would see with those guys is, you know, instead of 3-0 heaters, you're seeing 3-0 change-ups and curveballs. So for an import to come down there and succeed in hitting, you you need to be able to hit the off-speed. But if you can, you're going to stay down there a long time and make a lot of money and be the king of a team, that's for sure. So what, uh, what other differences are there? I know you said in general guys don't throw as hard, guys throw a lot of breaking stuff. I mean, what are kind of the, the compare and contrast a little bit for me? I mean, it's just the daily routines as far as, you know, training and working out. When I was there, we're just lacking versus the States, you know. I mean, there's no minor leagues. You either make the cut or you just go home. There's only one little spring training that's about two weeks. And if you make the roster as a Mexican player as a team or you're you're an invite, you play. If not, you go home for the season. I mean, it's pretty cutthroat. I mean, like I said, here in the States, there's more hard throwers, but there's not a 
summer and a winter league which guys go home and rest so some of those studs down there if they haven't been picked up at 16 or signed via mlb team they're throwing both seasons starting or relieving and starting i mean it's there's a lot of innings and if you're on fire and if you're throwing hard you're in the game almost every night there's no rules per se like in the minor leagues in the states where if you throw a day you get a day off or if you throw back to back you get two days off so i mean the longevity of them kind of dies out sometimes so their velo slows down and lack of workouts you know lack of strength just kind of so what does that mean some of these guys to the ground i just you know the strength training isn't as high up there there's more just i wouldn't say that's lazy i just think of lack of knowledge at times or lack of trust in the weights due to they are playing two seasons so the more they can just run and maintenance their body versus with via bands is the way they think about it but you still got a strength trying to keep your strength up you know you gotta you gotta have a maintenance program and some of these teams now are becoming more into the strength and conditioning it's just knowledge i mean a lot of knowledge and i think some of the trainers at the beginning might have been coming from soccer clubs and soccer you know you just run a lot yeah there's not much strength training because they want to be light and agile on their feet and, but i'll tell you what i mean i didn't run into hardly bad hardly any bad teammates if at all down there i mean they're, they're all there you know every night it's win 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 it's not really developing it you know they're out there to win they're gonna put the best nine and you're competing and every night you need to win because if you don't somebody else is taking your money and winter ball it's 60 games i mean you're blink of an eye the seasons are i mean they're already on the second half so tell me about the length of the seasons and when do they start when do they end Winter ball usually is around October 11th, November, December, and late December is the playoffs. Championships usually around, probably finishing up around first week or two of January. And then if your team should win, you'd go on to the Caribbean series, which rotates from Venezuela, Dominican, Puerto Rico, Mexico, just by year where they host. And so most of those guys, right after that, will run right into spring training. Uh, you see more of the guys from each country joining the second half or, say, mid, mid-December mid to kind of get ready for spring training, say the big, per se, the big leaguers, and then they'll usually join on for the Caribbean team, which are usually the team who wins that division in that country, but then they can handpick as well. Um, how many games the, in the summer? And You said 60 in the winter, right? Yeah, around 60. I'm not too sure to be exact. Um, summer, I believe it's 140. And that usually starts around April 1st and ends in mid to late September, depending on the playoffs and depending when they start due to the World Baseball Classic or if you know a team is having trouble locating like they've been relocating some teams lately and moving around some locations on teams some new owners moving in but uh and the travel when they're moving teams but it's 140 games and man they're they want to win them all that's the thing that's just hard to pick because you can't win every baseball game baseball is just unpredictable in that era and i wish that they would give the imports sometimes a month or two to get settled in. Sometimes, you know, if you're strike out or I've seen it where people come on our team, strike out six times in a week and they're done. I mean, but baseball is a game of ups and downs for sure. And slumps and the way you bust out of a slump, you might say that guy struck out six times this week. He might hit six, 600 the next two months, but you know, they want to win and they're paying the imports some decent money to come in and out. So they want instant wins and instant, success so i get it on both ends it's just a bummer sometimes you pack up and move in somewhere and then two weeks you see the guy back home yeah so how many teams did you play for in total down there i played for wasabi two years in winter ball Guadalajara, like a half a season over on a half a season so that's four teams 
In the summer, I played for Cancun, Veracruz, Puebla, Reynosa, Oaxaca. That's five. I think I played for nine teams. Which was your Which was your favorite? And obviously, Cancun would be my favorite. Due to I mean, you live on tourist row. I mean, you see different people every day here on the island, right there at the beach. We didn't have to play till eight o'clock at night due to the heat. Um, wasabi was probably my favorite winter ball per se because it was a small farm town, reminded me of home, and you know it was it was definitely poor, but uh, the fans were great. They really cared about their team, and that's who was bought. They bought, they got bought and purchased. Let me correct. They were purchased by. Jalisco, Guadalajara, which is a $6 million city, and now they're booming. And I got to go there and experience it, and it was amazing. But, I mean, that's playing in a big-time city. So it was awesome as well. But as far as meeting the people and fans and being one-on-one, there was nothing like Wasabi for sure. So tell me about, because I've heard stories, some from you, some from others. Tell me about the cartels and safety playing in Mexico. Uh. You know, probably the scariest place I ever played was the border town of Reynosa, which is the state of Tamaulipas. Um, they're no longer there as well. I mean, we'd be playing in here, you'd be hearing, obviously, cartel and police or the federales, you know, firing gunshots outside the stadium. So as far as safety, you know, to and from was pretty dangerous there. But I stayed on the state side because you could cross over every night. Um People think Mexico is super bad and super scary, but, you know, when you're part of the team and you're playing baseball, they love you, and they don't want anything. They're not going to hurt you. They're not going to harm you unless you are in the way of them or going down a dark alley just like you would in uh, the States. You know, if you're going down the wrong way, you should always expect something wrong to happen just because that's not your territory, and you probably have no means of being there. Um, or if you're out and about and you talk to the wrong woman that might be linked to a man that has money you know you kind of if you want to visit to that pretty looking girl sometimes you just hold back and see if she'll come visit to you or whatnot uh but it's very protective very family orientated down there as well most young ladies stay at home until they become married so i mean everyone lives at home it's all family orientated uh food seasonal you know, they don't, there's no preservatives. You're just eating everything right off the farm or whatever they can get their hands on. A lot of uh, beer drinking due to most places don't have the highest water sanit- sanitization. And beer is usually cheaper than a bottle of water in the store, unfortunately. Uh, but they have a great time. You know, there's a lot of nice fiestas and parties and get-togethers. And they all carry on. They dance. They have a good time. And then they go home. But uh, stereotypical, you know, there's a lot of, per se, people think there's super bad things that go on down there. Yes, there is. But you have to involve yourself and make yourself go down those wrong paths or choose to involve yourself in that stuff. If you're just playing ball and doing the right thing, they love you because they're all about sports down there. They're all about their team. And the more you can get in to being a part of them, the better it is. For example, the first year in Wasabi, I didn't know only Spanish, but I tried to speak with the hotel front desk person more and the, the two hosts that were uh, running the cafeteria dining hall in the hotel. And there was only one hotel. And the lady had spoke English because she had lived in Tucson before. So she would help me and correct me, help me correct me, and I wanted to be able to go outside of the hotel to eat and speak to fans at the game, you know, tell them thank you or to be able to speak with my teammates better. So I just started hacking away and Spanglishing it and then texting would help and it just all came together and it was great. So tell me you won a championship there, right? And that was a pretty crazy night. I think that was one of your favorite stories that you told me, but feel free to correct me if it's not. Yeah, I mean, we won a championship in the winter, and uh, you know, we were we were on the road, and when we won, we got rushed into the clubhouse, you know, popping champagne. But there, there's no champagne, so there's beer. And we got after it, and the owner had a very nice house, so we 
in order to get out of there, though, we had to go with a security guy on each side of us to get to the bus and then, you know, six armored trucks around us to get out of the city because the other team's fans were pretty disappointed. But then we went up to this high mountain area, had a full carne asada fiesta. And I mean, it was it was full on done a plus. It would have been just like a championship or a World Series in the States, just Mexican style. And man. To think about that was crazy, and I don't know if you could do it any better. So, what are the other? Uh, what are some of the other? But the other thing. Uh, Go ahead. On the uh, on the other parts about the games, like I said, and how crazy they get. I mean, you in between, say like the third, fourth, fifth innings, the cheerleaders on both sides come back and forth, which I'd never seen in my life. Because they have cheerleaders that the the baseball games and they come out and do dances and they're in little mini skirts and you know short tops almost like a bikini it's like wow what has this all gone to but you know they dance hard they look beautiful but man you know they it's something that's that's their culture and and i never saw it before and it was interesting and you know every team has them they try out kind of like a cheerleader in the nfl here per se but you know our baseball teams don't really have that but that was quite interesting and fun to watch um like i said a couple of chicken fights at home plate in the first year i was real shocked i mean they didn't go to death but they just let them get after it a little bit and, <laughs> and the whole crowd just screaming back and forth um another thing that's interesting is most mlb teams have mascots and mylings have mascots well in mexico the mascots are on the field you know the whole time in between innings dancing or out there bugging with the coaches so it's more of an interaction more music i mean you know here in the states it's pretty quiet in between pitches there man i mean it's rocking beers are 32 ounces for say a dollar i mean it's it's a full-on heck of a time that's for sure and i was blown away but if you want to go see a game and experience something different on the baseball side of things that's the place to be yeah and then so you, after your time in Mexico, you spent the last couple years in the Atlantic League. That's where you and I were teammates uh, back in 2015. Then you went back to Mexico a little bit, and then you've been back in the States. So, but this past year, you played in Sugarland, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston. So you were right there with the whole hurricane and, and all that mess. Um, so tell me a little bit about your time in Houston this, uh, this summer and how that whole process went down. Well, first of all, July and August are the hottest times I've ever played baseball, for sure. Um, luckily, Sugarland, Texas has a, a five-star facility for an independent league baseball team. Definitely do it right. Uh, we were had we have we were lucky enough, I guess you would say, to be on the road when the hurricane hit. The the pictures and the devastation that happened was insane. You know, the water on some of the highways that I remember driving daily to and from the field or to Houston to go see a buddy or go to a different person's house and look like the ocean. Let alone when we came back, there was still high water everywhere. It took me 10 minutes on the daily to get to and from my host family to the field. It took me over an hour to get home due to detours and things like that. And seeing flood lines as high as my head on some of these walls and homes driving past was was super sad and i just i couldn't imagine what they were going through i mean there was only they said 70 70 some percent maybe even higher didn't even have flood insurance so my heart really was went out to all those people along with the people in the houston area that played on our team and Everybody, I mean, the relief fund and then all those people from Louisiana with their boats, I forget what they're called, the Bayou Patrol or something came in to help and rescue people in the boats. I mean, it was it was awesome to see it all, but at the same time, it was just, I can't imagine going into that or you know, losing a whole home and maybe even family members or belongings. So it's definitely a life-changing moment that I was a part of and got to come back say i think it was a week later when we flew back and helped the buddy take some of his sheetrock about four feet high and all the appliances out it was pretty much a full gut of a home and had to dry it out but i think we preserved it and moved on to another one but 
beyond the hurricane, playing in Sugarland was awesome. You know, we had top of the line everything, great host families, and it was easy. I mean, people think, oh, you have to fly everywhere, but I'd rather fly than ride a bus. And in independent ball, if you can fly and you're getting treated that well, it was it was pretty five star. So what did you do when you guys were going? I mean, did the team continue to play at home? Or did you guys play on the road exclusively? Or, I mean, what was the condition of the ballpark? Oh, uh, I mean, the ballpark didn't get hit as hard as other places due to a little bit higher ground. Uh, the only thing that really happened to the ballpark, they kind of used it as a, relief, a rescue relief site, kind of where they could stage it and fly the helicopters in because a little bit higher ground. The only thing it did was kind of kill the grass <clears throat> in the infield due to uh, the tarp being off for so long and probably not getting the air circulation that it needed. But when it hit, New Britain was w- welcoming enough that we just went ahead and drove from Southern Maryland up to New Britain and played a, a three-game home or homestand there as the home team in New Britain, uh, free admission and all the gate money there and concession was donated to Hurricane Harvey. And then we were almost debating due to the water levels and it's still not the rain continuing. We uh, almost drove back to Southern Maryland again to play that home series there, but we were able to catch a flight to Dallas and then we got on a charter bus and rode from Dallas three and a half hours to Sugarland. So they got the games in. But uh, I exited a little bit early this last season just due to I felt like I wanted to help out with more homes and clearing than rushing games right away. I mean, I'm sure it was therapeutic, so they so they would suggest for the fans to come out and play. But, you know, two days after, three days after the world's largest disaster of water inland. I mean, I didn't feel the nerve to get on the mountain pitch right at the moment. So I just kind of helped out with some buddies and their homes and called my season a little bit early and wished the team good luck. And they went on and played the next uh, 10 games, I believe at home and on the road. So what's the, what's the future hold now? You're back in Vegas and What's going on? I am. I'm back in Vegas. I'm doing a little uh, Amazon delivery and some lessons on the side just for some, you know, odd in work to keep afloat as well as training baseball style. But uh, I'm also signed up to start taking some EMT classes. This coming Saturday will be my first uh, class because I'd like to uh, be a firefighter here in the Vegas area when baseball is done. Uh, at this moment, I'm probably 80% complete with my career. I'm going to, you know, call it good and say my goodbyes and farewells. But, I mean, my EMT class ends in May and say May, June, someone needs a starter and I've been throwing and uh, the opportunity is right and EMT is completed and I have my certification. I can still be applying for fire departments as well as riding on ambulances nationwide because you have to take the national test so i'm not ruling it out to play again i just feel like i ended on a really good note last year in my second half i think i had like a one nine something one eight five around in there as a starter for the second half and had probably i think it was five consecutive quality starts i i'm not a huge stat guy i just go on how we win and lose as a team due to it's a team game but if you hold up your individual end you should hopefully win more than lose. But I'd say one thing in baseball is you meet a lot of people, you find a lot of connections, and there's a lot of good people. You know, there's a lot of good guys. And there's what I noticed, you know, unfortunately you were never able to play in affiliated, but you had the stuff. I mean, I saw you ramp up 96, 97, three pitches for a strike. I mean, I don't know why people don't get drafted or get the opportunity. It blows my mind. I've seen it the last three years in independent ball. I mean, there's a lot of guys picked up this last year and have done well. Look at, I mean, not, I mean, Rich Hill was already kind of a bona fide big leaguer, but he, he got to pitch in a world series this last year and he was in long Island for a hot minute. Yeah. I always kind of joke that we helped him get back there because we were the last team that we, uh, that he pitched against yeah i think he punched out 11 and 11 and four innings on us yeah something like that yeah that curveball city there's a lot of good players out there and there's a lot of good opportunities to stay in the game now and 
I mean, even overseas, guys are getting picked up from the independent ball league. And if there's one thing I'd love to have done, I'd love to try to play in maybe the Japanese league or Taiwan or Korean league just to see what it's all about. Um, if there's one more thing, maybe, you know, say in June, if Italy is looking for a starter, it's not the highest competition rate, but they say you only play twice a week and then you can go tour. So yeah. if it's going to be on their dime, I'd love to go check out Italy and have wine and cheese and bread and all that good stuff on, and then turn around and play a game or two every week. But other than that, I mean, it's been 13 years. Of, I've seen a lot of country, a lot of states. Um, I also played for, I don't know, three weeks in the Can-Am League when uh, I left New Britain for a short time and Quebec, Canada was beautiful, clean. Man, it was a nice ballpark, huge following there. I've never seen, I would have never thought the following per game there was that great. But, it, man, it was had a heck of a turnout, and they just got turf. And, I mean, all, independent ball is definitely growing, and there's a, a need for it. It's just thinking about all these guys that ha- play baseball independently, minor leagues, and, you know, there's only 30 teams. And it's just baseball is huge. Yeah in the whole country and you know i hope that you know soon i think that mlb could add two more teams i'm sure you could put one in north carolina somewhere and say i'm sure vegas will be reaching out since they're getting more pro teams i mean there's definitely a need for two more pro teams well there's definitely enough guys i mean they they just wonder if it's going to water it down at the top level or or what because obviously the very bottom levels of independent ball it's really not pro baseball you know, like there's the bottom couple that sort of barely pay a guy a couple hundred bucks a month and they don't get any fans and they're playing on high school fields. Like, you know, everyone wants to play pro baseball, but not all of it is. And everyone wants to play major league baseball, but they're, you know, what a major league year is is kind of depend on the crop of guys available and, you know, the caliber of play. So, you know, the question I guess would be, and I don't know the answer, but if they add two more teams or, are they just adding like four A teams, or they you know four A triple A kind of caliber teams? Or are they legit, you know, major league talent? That's kind of the question. I think but. it'll still be pretty good as far as major league talent, due to now the health and wellness and training outside of baseball, which they didn't get back in the day, per se. I think that with all these new training techniques and you know gyms and trainers and nutrition and supplementation there's some guys i mean heck you got guys that are playing a lot older that are still darn good i mean but you know that's on that's another 25 man that's another 50 major leaguers on the 25 man roster so yeah yeah i mean that's another 50 of big leaguers that you want the quality of play to be up there for sure maybe Maybe they'll add a 26-man roster like they do on double headers and just leave it at 26, and that adds another guy. That's another 30 more guys that would be up there at that time. I, I don't know, but I know that baseball is definitely heading in the right direction. It's making a lot of money, and bar, ballparks are becoming like cathedrals. I mean, they're beautiful. All these ones they're building and putting up, it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Well, we've had a pretty good run. Did you know you crossed the 1,000 innings pitch mark this past year? I didn't. Yeah, I'm that's looking, pretty cool. I'm looking at your stats now, one thousand twenty-four point one. So it's, it's a heck of a lot of innings to be as healthy as as you've been, and you know, keep your performance level pretty consistent all those years. So you know, no, honestly, I can say, yeah, I appreciate that. And honestly, I can say I've never had an arm injury. I've never been on the DL for my arm. So you know, I'll continue to knock on wood, and you know. That's one of the things that I feel back when I was affiliated or, you know, trying to reach out back for a team is my, you know, my durability is there. I mean, that's somebody that can take the ball every night. And I feel like, you know, there is a lot of arm injuries going up and down, up and down. And arm care is huge. And you run a facility and you, you have huge arm care even after you, you know, had your unlucky times with... Tommy John and if people can listen to you and use the bands I use the bands you use I mean just those simple drills yeah it's not fun at times but you know that 20 minutes will save you six months of rehab yeah and if people will yeah I mean even more I mean I don't know what the timeline is now but I just feel like these kids should really 
arm care is huge. And if you can't buy the bands, go go ask somebody to buy them for you. Or swim some laps. Do something to re- rehab that arm because you only have one arm. I mean, you can get it surgically fixed, but, you know, who says it's going to come back 100%? And, you know, you're doing the right thing. You got good teams going. You got – I watch, you know, videos on your Instagram and Snap. I mean – you're doing all the lifts that are going to hopefully in the end make their maintenance maintenance less at the end of the day and durability longer. And the, the sooner you can get on track and have all these, you know, uh, arm care things in, implemented and it just becomes routine. And then you don't have to spend an hour and a half because you know what you're doing and you know exactly what you need to get ready. So that's one of the things I tell these kids, you know, like these weighted ball things are good, but there's a way to use weighted balls and there's a way not to use weighted balls and there's a way to gain strength and there's a way to not gain strength and it's all sports related. So on that, man, I I think you're doing the right thing and I hope that the Chicago area will look to you more and reach out to your players and hopefully in the due time you're going to get guys, you know, seen out of a place that's not a baseball hotspot due to the weather per se yeah yeah it is cold but there's some pretty decent baseball players up here in the no that's i would have to agree it's just in the hot spots they're not looking at all that but you're doing the right thing man and i wish i was closer to come and help and do more things like that well i appreciate it dude well hey man it's been great having you on the show and uh we'll catch up soon all right, my man. Thanks again, and uh, best of luck on everything. And you always got a friend of me, and it's always been a pleasure knowing you. And we'll keep in touch. All right, sounds great. All right, brother. See ya. Well, that's it for today. This was episode thirty of Dear Baseball Gods, and we'll catch you here next week.